The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Good, Father. Thanks for being here tonight. Appreciate Thank you, Thank you very much. You're very welcome, and it's good to see you again. Me too. Father, I thought we could start tonight. Uh, do you have any update for us regarding the Covington Catholic story? Well, yes, there are some updates. Uh, of course, the uh, the attorney, the lead attorney for uh, the boys who were slandered in the press and uh, the, the media in general uh, has launched, I think, 50, uh, 50 letters uh, demanding retractions or threatening legal action. And uh, legal action will be going forward. I understand that even the, uh, the Indian drummer, uh, uh, so Nathan Phillips is going to be subject to a lawsuit for what he did, and um, understandably so. I mean, it, it was a setup. There's no doubt about it. One can see from the long, well, almost two-hour video footage taken by the so-called Hebrew Israelites that there was one of the Native Americans with his cell phone pushing right, right there where the drum and the and the face of Nick uh, Nick Sandman was just. Taking it all in, it was taking it all down for a reason, right? They were on the hunt for uh, for a victim, right? Um, to make themselves look like victims. So I think they're going to have a pretty strong case when it's all put together. The evidence is there that uh, um, Nick uh, Sandman and his Cov Covington Cath boys were not the hunters; they were the hunted in this case. <clears throat> But I, I still want to stress the fact that uh, what uh, Nathan Phillips and his and his group were uh, engaged in was actually a shamanistic occult uh, assault, really, on the boys. And uh, the the beating of the drum was part of it. I, and I stress that because uh, not only um is it not is it not being raised the, the, that matter is not being raised that we had basically an occult religious practice that was being pushed in the face of these boys that deliberately invaded their space as it were they where they were standing uh chanting their school chants and these people actually filtered in within them among them and confronted them with a an occult religious practice of their own uh, the chanting and the beating of drums uh, was actually um, a matter of summoning spirits, as, as Nathan Phillips says. I received a phone call uh, just in the last few days from a man who was a frequent visitor at Serpent Mound near Cincinnati, and a very old Native American um, sacred ground to them, right? And he regularly goes out there to study the history of it and also to gather artifacts such as arrowheads and so on. And he says, you'll find on the uh, occultic days, like the solstices and so on, you'll find 
the gathering of all the shamans and their drums and the you'll find the Wiccans out there, you'll find all kinds of people out there. But they're all having in common the fact that they uh they they're all into one aspect of the occult or another. But you find the beating of the drums uh is a common practice. In fact, uh if if one were to look up if one had any doubt about this, okay, the significance of the beating of the drum in that boy's face. All one has to do is, is search uh, or investigate the significance of the drum and the drum beating in the Native American religions, you know, uh, their, their own practices and, uh, and their culture. It's all tied together, you know. And uh, one has to, uh, one would also find their, the significance of the drum beating uh, throughout all of the pagan ritualist practice even into modern-day uh, rock music. Uh, many of the rock so-called musicians are into the shamanistic occult uh, religions. They're, they're deeply into this kind of thing. And they point out, too, that, yes, the beating of the drum is meant to uh, sort of harmonize with the, the beating of the heart of Mother Earth, and is supposed to uh, summon spirits. It's supposed to draw the spirits together. They have their drum circles where they all get together. It's not just a matter of practice, they say, um, where they're all facing each other. It's a matter of uniting their spirits and having a super, a super consciousness come out of it, where all their consciousnesses are not only raised, but they're also united in this super consciousness. Um, and so there's no doubt about it. I mean, we're talking about an occult practice here and the, the, the drum being an instrument of this occult practice. Um, so, uh, you know, I know, I know it's not politically correct these days, uh, to, um, to question the cultures of others, but we're talking about, uh, here, the manifestation of a culture that is very deeply involved in what, as Catholics, we would say is an occultic practice. And, uh, and actually, as I say, those who are actually practicing it that day, led by this Nathan Phillips as their elder, right, uh, made it very clear that they were beating that drum as a, a, uh, a means of summoning spirits and uniting spirits and involving, well, we would, what we would regard as occult religious practices. Mm -hmm. They were doing it right in this boy's face. So there, there's just no way. I think even according to their modern political correctness, they could they could uh, justify that in the eyes of well anybody who's an honest judge in an honest court. Sure. And Father, you know, I think that this um, this whole theme of this rising paganism, as you as you called it, I think that theme has been so prevalent today. You know, just recently I, I sent you an article uh, concerning Tom Brady who just won the mm. Super Bowl with the Patriots right, and right. how, um, you know, along the similar similar lines here, he's, he's explained how uh, he has, one of the reasons he's been so successful is because of his witch wife who yeah. who sets up altars for him, gives him mantras to repeat and uh, gives him sacred stones to protect him. stones to protect him and all, all sorts of And he's of going along with it. He says it works. And that's why he said it the, works. Uh, and uh, you know what is kind of ironic? Here you have a man who's who's uh, been kind of crowned as the greatest of all time. The goat. The goat. <laughs> Isn't that strange? The goat. <laughs> it's all in capital letters. 
he's being called the GOAT, the greatest of all times. I understand he isn't like that. Right, yeah. But of all things that would characterize someone in an occultic char- uh, you know, <laughs> right. symbol, the GOAT, right? Yeah. The, symbol, the symbol of Satan himself, yeah. you know? Um, the symbol of the condemned spirit that our Lord puts on his left hand, the goats, right? Mm-hmm. It's those who have rejected him. It's so ironic that that has come up all of a sudden. Now, I'm not saying that Tom Brady, I'm not saying Tom Brady is, you know, one of those on the Lord's left hand or anything like that. But I'm saying if he is going to start promoting uh, witchcraft and the occult and, and the New Age um, uh, superstitions, yeah and attribute his victories to these things, I would say that uh, he's in very, very serious spiritual uh, straits right now. Sure. And his, uh, his wife, uh, who's a supermodel, so-called, I guess, um, is, is, is into the occult. And I think she's even quoted as saying he should be grateful that he married a witch. A good witch. A good witch, yes, okay. So, uh, but anybody involved in witchcraft is, in, is uh, engaging in things that are very evil, in any case, no matter how good they may consider themselves. <clears throat> and invoking Satan or invoking uh, the occult powers to do good is still evil sure. to do that. So, to do what is good in itself, materially good, is formally bad. So, um, but, uh, you know, if I were a winning quarterback and I had a record that he did, how how insulting would that be to my own record to say I accomplished this by means of magic, spells, and witchcraft? That's what has made me the greatest quarterback. I've simply used occult powers to give me this uh, the success. I mean, what is the man actually telling us that what it has made him is is great is something other than himself that uh, left to himself he would be nothing or no greater than anybody else i mean this is really uh, he himself is not only undermining but he's actually discrediting his achievement i think in the worst possible way it's like a uh, a, a confession of guilt in a sense that Yes, I've achieved my success over others. I have achieved my dominance over others on the gridiron by means of occult powers that my wife is gaining for me by her, uh, by her witchcraft. Mm-hmm. That does not speak well for this man. No. Um, and you'd think if he had any sense, he'd find it to be an embarrassment that he wouldn't want to admit. Mm-hmm. No, either it's true or it's not. Either there are occult powers that are uh, propelling Tom Brady's success, or there aren't. And maybe it's just a placebo that gives him some kind of confidence uh, that might give him some kind of a natural advantage over his over his uh, his adversaries. That he's got got these powers behind me, so I can accomplish great things. Maybe you know nothing to them. You know that's that's a joke. Or a farce or fraud, but uh, the fact is, uh, though, that he himself is attributing his success to occult powers, and uh, this is really awful. Uh, and uh, if I were he, uh, I would I would uh, think about the story of uh, Mephistopheles and Doctor Faustus and uh, Goethe's uh, morality 
detail about this. You know, I would be very, very concerned uh, about this. If I, if, any, if I were here in any faith, real faith mm-hmm. in Christ, I'd see this is a, this is very bad. And uh, what I what I said there was really an admission of uh, something that uh, um, is a scandal to those who who admire me and a kind of confession of guilt to those who find me uh, problematic, shall we say, who don't, don't like me. Sure. It, it, what about Bill Belichick, too, about him? Where, what, what faith does this man have in anything? You know? I mean, if, if I were a coach, uh, especially at that level, and I had a quarterback who achieved such success that I was being called the GOAT, and I found out that this is what is driving his success. I, I've repented of that right away. But uh, I don't hear anything from Bill, Bill Belichick about this. <laughs> no. Anyway, this is not a good, obviously not a good thing. Nope. Well, well Father, let's move from that to Francis. And by, by the way, I tell you, I'm sorry. If I were a fan, if I were a fan of the New England Patriots, mm-hmm. and I heard that my quarterback and my team's success uh, was actually powered by the occult, whether it be Wicca or Satanism or any other form of the occult, yeah. I mean that would that would be the end of it for me. That would be the end of it for me. Nothing to do with this anymore. Sure. What, what I've noticed, the father, is that uh, you know, when reports like this come out, that so many will just totally dismiss them as some kind of joke, some kind of laughable thing. Oh, haha, that's cute. And you get that reaction so often from so many people who don't want to take it seriously. And I believe even in the, the article where Tom Brady was talking about these things, he, he was kind of laughing it off and, and laughing about the fact that his wife would make these altars and give him these mantras and all of this stuff. He was, but at the know, same time he was doing that, he said he's taking it seriously. It works yeah, and he does what she, yeah, he, he does now what does what she tells him to do because he believes it works. Yeah. Now what scandal is involved in there? You know, you think about all the Patriots fans and all the fans of Tom Brady himself, apart from, you know, the, the team allegiance there, who will learn from that. This works. This gives me power. That's why people turn to the occult. They're looking for power. They feel powerlessness. They feel their powerlessness and they want power and they turn to the occult for power. And Brady says, this works. Look what it did for me. That's, uh, that's a horrible scandal. It's giving. Sure. Well, speaking of scandal, Father, what kind of scandal has Francis given lately? I believe he had some very interesting statements. Oh, yeah. Well, faithful. What was that? just uh, about 10 days ago, he was in Abu Dhabi, right? The uh, uh, United Arab Emirates, and he was meeting with a, uh, the, actually the head imam uh, in Abu Dhabi, a, 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 a Dignitary of Al-Ajar, right? the, the great uh, intellectual center of Islam, okay? And uh, Francis, um, you know, kissed the man and, uh, you know, professed great allegiance with him and the oneness and, and so on. But the most scandalous things he did, uh, rather than just kowtow, um, was issue a document signed by him, Francis, and by this imam. And in the document, Francis stated something that is prima facie, on the very face of it, heretical. It is a heretical statement, the type of thing uh, that has been condemned by the church explicitly, repeatedly. In fact, I have I have that statement or a, a copy of that particular part of the statement that is heretical right here. 
The, the document, by the way, was entitled A Document on Human Fraternity for World Peace and Living Together. Very profound. Yeah. Even the use of human fraternity, you know, it, it, it raises the specter of the uh, French Revolution. Right. And with its uh, uh, communist, socialist, uh, anti-God uh, aura and uh, its, its, its principles, okay? But uh, this is the, um, toward the midpoint of that document, in fact, this is a statement we read there. Freedom is a right of every person. Each individual enjoys the freedom of belief, thought, expression, and action. The pluralism and the diversity of religions, color, sex, race, and language, are willed by God in his wisdom, through which he created human beings. This divine wisdom is the source from which the right to freedom of belief and the freedom to be different derives. Okay. Now, the fact that he's ascribing the pluralism and the diversity of religions to the wisdom of God and to God's will is heretical and blasphemous. The Catholic Church has condemned this teaching completely, absolutely, such that... <laughs> Those, even in the Novus Ordo, the modern Novus Ordo conservatives, have found it necessary to denounce. They've reacted very strongly against it, about it. But again, now, okay, there's one dogma of faith for them that still stands, and that is Francis is the Pope. That's the one dogma of faith that is absolutely unassailable. Okay, Francis can deny anything, but he, he remains the Pope, no question about it. So that dogma supersedes all of the dogmas of faith to the conservative Novus Ordo see, as being the one thing you can't question. Now, this question uh, regarding pluralism and diversity of religions being according to God's will, okay, the conservative Novus Ordos have found it necessary to, to explain this. They want to explain it away. Okay, so one rather well-known uh, Novus Ordo, conservative Novus Ordo clergyman, <coughs> who is known as Father Z, is trying to explain this away by saying, well, look, we know that God has a designed will, a positive will for all that is good. He tolerates evil with his permissive will or his resigned will. So in that sense, we could say that God wills the plurality and diversity of religions uh, by his resigned will as an evil. Well, he doesn't say as an evil, but the fact is he's saying that these multiple religions are evils that God tolerates only by a certain resignation or permission, permissiveness. Um, now, even then, you know, they, they'd be politically incorrect in saying that uh, that these things are evils that God tolerates. You mean the plurality of religions is an evil? <laughs> You mean false religions are evil things in the eyes of the Catholic Church? The answer is there. It's true. Okay, that is correct. So uh, Father Z is saying something that in a sense is correct, that God has a design, a resigned will, a permissive will, to allow evil things, to tolerate them, for the sake of greater goods, as we know. Uh, but to say that Francis, that's what Francis means, is absolutely not true. How do we know that that's not really what Francis means? Because... In, in this statement, he's couching it as something good. It's by the wisdom of God. It's by the wisdom by which he created man in the first place. They say it's the same wisdom that motivates God, as it were, to will 
the plurality, diversity of religions. And it's not. Francis is talking about pluralism and diversity as something that is positively good. And God wills these things positively as good things. That's what Francis is saying. And that is heresy. <clears throat> How can we as Catholics believe that there is one true God, a blessed trinity of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and whose divine Son was sent into this world as man, to in, uh, as God incarnate, to offer his life in sacrifice for the redemption of mankind, to found a church to give one true religion with one true faith, and yet say that other religions that are not of God, that are not taught by the Son of God, that contradict him, that deny him, even would persecute those who believe in him, that they are that God wills that too, that God wills all of these things. How can this be the God we know as the God of truth, the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of truth? How can this be the God who can neither deceive nor be deceived, willing truth and error at the same time, even about himself, willing error is taught about God, which St. Thomas Aquinas and the Catholic Church teach are therefore blasphemies. How can God will those things positively as though they were good? It's impossible. So either Francis is guilty of heresy or he's guilty of apostasy. In other words, if this, if this is uh, standing in an isolated fashion with, her with, with Francis, it is unto itself a heresy. But if it tells you the God that Francis believes in, that this is the God he acknowledges and, and worships, right? this God who wills this diversity of religion, then this is not the true God of our Catholic faith, the God who has revealed to himself to us through the prophets and through our Lord Jesus Christ, his divine son. Francis believes in a false God. This is apostasy. So um, we, have, we have no other conclusion that we can draw. Either a heretic or apostate. Based upon what we know of Francis's sayings, uh, I think it's pretty clear that he's an apostate. And what are the ramifications of that? Well, the ramifications of that is that you know he, he would not he would not have the faith. I mean, he would not have the faith, and he could not be a member of the Catholic Church, and he would, could not be the Pope. Obviously, he couldn't be the Vicar of Christ on earth. He could be the Supreme Pontiff of the Novus Ordo, which he styles himself. He is the Supreme Pontiff of the Novus Ordo. He said when he said this statement, he actually justified it later after it was attacked. He said, well, this is just in the spirit of Vatican II. I'm just following through in the spirit of Vatican II. At which point, of course, all the conservatives that have to say, oh, well, it's true. You know, we all accept Vatican II. We may not like it, like the spirit of it, or like the abuses that come from it. But you can't question Vatican II. So it's true. Francis really is following through on the spirit of Vatican II. So therefore, with that statement, Francis has silenced his critics. Because now they have to say, okay, either Francis is wrong and argue that this is not the spirit of Vatican II, or they have to acknowledge he's right, which means that now they have to be quiet because they can't question Vatican II. The abuse of Vatican II, the spirit of Vatican II, which, you know, people uh, claim is not really what Vatican II was really all about. But there are many who he silenced by this because they, they have to 
acknowledge that it is the spirit of Vatican II. It is in the. It is not an abuse of Vatican II. It really is in line with the teachings of Vatican II. And they don't dare criticize that because they're getting awfully close now to admitting that modernism is the enemy and the fruits of modernism are not Catholic, that this is not Catholicism, that modernism is a false faith that has given rise to a false religion, which we know as the Novus Ordo. As soon as they admit that, they have to reject the new order. And they're clinging to it. They're clinging to it. They, they, they refuse to give it up. And it's, uh, it's going to take them down, unfortunately. Ultimately, it will take them away from the Catholic faith as they compromise more and more and define the papacy more and more according to what Francis is and what Francis does. And this is the tragic error, as I mentioned before, of recognize and resist. They're shifting the goalposts, as it were. They're shifting their reference point. Their reference point now as to what a pope can do and what the papacy is, is now set by Francis for them. So whatever he does, they have to adjust their understanding of the papacy according to what he's doing. And this is not going to end well for them in, the, in, in terms of the Catholic faith. The, the fact that Francis even went on in this document to say this is the teaching and it has to be promulgated everywhere, that's what he says. He says that what he's taught here has to be taught everywhere. He says, to this end, by mutual cooperation, the Catholic Church and Al-Ajar announce and pledge to convey this document to authorities, influential leaders, persons of religion all over the world, appropriate regional and international organizations, organizations within civil society, religious institutions and leading thinkers, they further pledge to make known the principles contained in this declaration at all regional and international levels while requesting that those principles be translated into policies, decisions, legislative texts, courses of study, and materials to be circulated. Francis is telling us this. This heresy has to be spread everywhere and not only has to be inculcated in the minds of people have to accept these principles that he's enunciated here, but they have to put them into practice, not only in practice in terms of, uh, you know, your, your, your local uh, meeting of the Boy Scouts, which are now the Girl Scouts too, or the Rotary Club, but into law, laws of nations. They have to incorporate these principles that he's given, among them this heresy. So, Father, with a statement like this, you know, not only is, is Francis saying heresy himself, but he's actually promulgating it and saying that this has to be taught everywhere. Why can we not say that Francis is, without a doubt, not the Pope? He's not a Catholic Pope. Why can we not definitively say that with a statement like this? Well, there, are, there actually are some of those in the, who are, we'd call conservative Novus Ordo, right? Who are actually raising that issue. You know, there are those who will not go there. They're afraid to go there. That's the sad part, right? They're afraid to even raise that question. There are those who will even say those who raise the question are crazy people. They say they're, they're insane. You know? mm -hmm. But uh, why they're insane, they don't explain. They just call them names, you know. Um, but Joseph Seifert, Joseph Seifert is a rather well-known Austrian Catholic philosopher. In the year 2016, actually called upon Francis to revoke what he called the objectively heretical statements in Amoris Laetitia. 
in order to avoid schism, heresy, and the complete split in the church. I mean, that Joseph Seifert is bringing out errors contained in his, in Francis's apostolic exhortation, Amoris Laetitia, all the way back in 2016. We're promoting, he says, schism, heresy, and a complete split in the church. But now he asks with regard to this latest pronouncement of Francis, how can God will religions that deny Christ's divinity and resurrection? Actually, uh, Seifert says that Francis' statement contains all heresies, turning God into a relativistic who does a relativist who does not know that there is only one truth and doesn't care whether there's only one truth. And uh, he he even concludes that Francis rejected Christianity by that statement. It kind of sounds like modernism. The one true faith. Well. You know, St. Pius X said that modernism is, is the synthesis of all heresies. Curiously enough, Seifert uses that language saying his statement contains all heresies. I mean, it's like saying Francis is the modernist. He is not just a modernist. He is the modernist in chief. He's the supreme pontiff of modernism, which is basically the same thing as saying he's the supreme pontiff of the Novus Ordo which he himself professes himself to be, the Supreme Pontiff of Vatican II, is what he is. So, you know, there are those who are saying that he's got to retract this or call into question, at least call into question his papacy. He says, uh, this is what Seifert says, if he does not do this, I'm afraid that canon law may apply concerning to which a pope automatically loses his Petrine office when professing heresy especially when he professes the sum total of all heresies. Those are pretty strong, pretty strong terms that he's expressing here. Do you agree with that? Uh, oh, yeah, definitely. But I, don't, I, I think he's limiting it to canon law. But canon law does get into the question of losing one's office in the church. There's no doubt about it. In the, old, uh, in the 1918 Code of Canon Law, uh, Canon 188 spoke of the question of someone losing his office in the church. And uh, talking about even in the old code of canon law being suspect of heresy and then being uh, confronted with that suspicion and doing nothing to correct the heresy. And after six months time, actually then just being a heretic, being considered a heretic for failing to uh, retract what made one suspect of heresy. See, the suspicion has to do with not whether what he said was heretical. What he said was heretical. The suspicion is whether he means it. And he understands that it's heretical. He's given six months to face the fact that what he said was heretical, after which it becomes formal heresy, okay, that, that he, he knows it's heretical, knows it's heretical, and he, he explicitly uh, and willfully uh, is, uh, you might say, uh, um, I'm trying to remember the exact word, mm -hmm. um, the, the sense that he's obstinate in his heresy. So, um, you know, there, there are allowances for this in canon law. So Professor Seifert is correct. The canon law does. I, I haven't, I'm not familiar with the new code of canon law's provisions about this. But nonetheless, the fact that he says this indicates that even the, the new modernist code of canon law at least provides for something like this. I mean, in, in my case, I consider this to be a moot point, entirely a moot point. Um, and I consider it to be a moot point because uh, I think there, there are such irregularities in the elections of popes 
irregularities that have been brought in artificially in their modernist laws when they gain power. John the 23rd, Paul the 6th, especially Paul the 6th, who actually stacked the deck against Catholics in the color of cardinals. And, uh, and then John Paul II following through on that. Um, I mean, when you think about the, the chicanery that the modernists employed for the election of popes when they first gained power and could start manipulating those rules, you know, of how popes are elected. I mean, to, to change the majority needed from a two-thirds majority to a simple majority, um, you know, reduces the standard, right? And even risks, even in, in, in Catholic times, the fact that a vote might have been invalidated for one reason, one vote. And so a man who was elected by a majority of one vote would, would find that we'd find that it was invalid. Um, so they, they called into question all future votes when they reduced that requirement from two thirds majority of card the Cardinals voting to a, one, one vote advantage giving a person the papacy. Um, that was extremely risky. The Catholic Church would not have done that. Sure. The modernists would do that. But at the same time, increasing the number of cardinals from 70, a maximum of 70, to 135, almost doubling the number of cardinals, so that now they could name an additional 65 cardinals um, and, and name them and because they're all thinking like modernists, right? I mean, this is sort of like the, the Democrats wanting to allow this illegal immigration to get people in who will vote for them right. because they can't convince enough Americans to vote for them, right. to put them in power. They've got to import all these votes, uh, fake votes, you know, for uh, their ascent to power, they need these people. So, I mean, this is what this is really all about, right? This immigration question right now. And this is exactly what the modernists did. The modernists almost showed them how to do it, you know? And, um, but then the modernists also did a third thing when it came to the election of a pope. The modernists also ruled that any cardinal uh, who reached his 80th birthday would be in, he could not vote. Just as soon as you're 80 years old, you lose your right to vote for the papacy. So they, brought, they, they provided with bringing all of these younger modernists in to power to vote for a pope and cut off those who were older. I mean, they were so brazen about it. I just can't imagine that people let them get away with that. That, to me, would have been a statement that the church has been hijacked by these modernists. That would have been the end of the question in my own mind, anyway that uh, this calls into, into, into question the validity of all these people who follow with these, these uh, fake rules that these modernists introduced in order to secure, to consolidate their power, to assure their power going into the future, that no Catholic could be called Pope. <laughs> so, I mean, that in itself, I think, it really, really raises the specter of, uh, of chicanery and tampering with election, you know. Uh, but, but also, I mean, Francis himself has made very clear to us what he thinks of the papacy 
And what Francis considers to be the papacy is not what the Catholic Church considers the papacy. They talk about the Petrine office here. You know, you have Francis talking about the Petrine office, the office, the place of Peter in the church, what, what it means to be a successor of Peter. Okay. And it is not. Francis's concept of the papacy is not only uh, not what the Catholic Church teaches the papacy is, it is, it is diametrically opposed to what the church considers the papacy. And so knowing that a man cannot become the Pope until he makes a formal acceptance of the office, and knowing from Francis's own words that he doesn't even believe in the office of the papacy as the Catholic Church understands it. But his concept is something contrary to the office of the papacy. Then the question I think naturally arises, how can he formally accept an office he doesn't even believe in, an office that he formally rejects even exists? and substitutes something of his own of his own modernist mentality. Pope Pius X, in his encyclical on modernism, condemns among the heirs of the modernists their concept of the papacy. And that's the concept of Francis. So if this concept of the papacy that Francis has, has been condemned by St. Pius X as being not Catholic and the antithesis of anti-Catholicism, or the, the antithesis, antithesis of Catholicism, and part of this you know, synthesis of all heresies. How could Francis, on that basis, formally accept that office of the papacy? I think there's a very serious question here. Nobody else is willing to raise it, at least nobody else I know. But it's not that complicated. It's very simple and straightforward. So, um, you know, I, I, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, I, I, I am of the opinion that Francis is not. I, I'm of the conviction that Francis is not a, the pope of the traditional faith. How can one be the Pope of the Novus Ordo, modernist construction, which is condemned by the Church, and the, the Vicar of Christ and the, and the Pope of the Catholicism at the same time? How can a Pope be the Vicar of anti-Catholicism and, and the Vicar of Catholicism at the same time? Is this really possible? See? So I would have to say, I personally am convinced that he, that he can't be a true Pope, right? But I'm also very much convinced that I'm not the Pope and I can't make dogmas, okay? I can have my own convictions, but I can't uh, pretend that they are dogmas and doctrines of the faith. So I can't insist that everybody agree with me. I can't insist that anybody agree with me. I think it's very logical, the mission I've taken, but that, that, that only gives you a theological you know, conviction. It, it doesn't approach the level of a dogma or a doctrine. So when I go down the communion rail, I don't ask people, do you agree with me about this? <laughs> and then that's a condition. I, I can't do that. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. Somebody could legitimately disagree with my position and still be Catholic. Mm -hmm. And be a traditional Catholic and say, okay, well, look, I'm going to follow the traditions of faith and I'm going to practice traditional Catholicism. I still can't get past the fact that, you know, the question of... Uh, Francis being a pope or not, I realize I'm conflicted about it. They might even say, I wish he weren't, but emotionally they have a problem with it because they say, well, if he's not the pope, look at the consequences, and they're afraid of the consequences. I understand that. But at the same time, there are people who look at Francis and say, well, gee, if he is the pope, look at the consequences, and they're afraid of those consequences. And you have the city of Acontis and the anti-city of Acontis, uh, you know, going at it, which I, I consider to be extremely unfortunate because I think if the devil has kind of, you know, created this fight. But really when it comes right down to it, what we have to do as far as practicing the faith, 
I mean, we all agree that what we, what we believe in is the, the traditional catechism, the traditional faith. We believe in that, you know. And we all agree that we want the traditional Catholic sacraments of the Roman Rite unaltered right, in their purity of tradition. And we all agree that we want to follow Catholic tradition as our, the authority, ultimately, above every pope. Right? So in practice, I think we essentially agree on what we should do as far as practicing our faith. And I consider this controversy to be uh, somewhat artificial, unnecessary, and a very serious obstacle mm -hmm. for us. Because, uh, I say unnecessary, because we don't have to answer the question to practice Catholic tradition. And I say unfortunate, because it divides those who otherwise really should be united in agreeing on the, essentially what we need to do about the problem. There is a problem, we all agree, the problem is modernism. Some are willing to say it, some not, but deep down we do. We all agree it's, it's modernism that has infected the church and, and, and done these horrible things and is responsible for this crisis of, of, of the church right now. Uh, so we agree on, the, on the, res, the root of the problem and we agree on the solution following Catholic tradition. And that's what we should be concentrating on, you know, doing that. Um, but this, this great deep-seated division, I think, can only be solved if both sides of the issue realize, well, okay, you know, uh, we are afraid of the consequences of admitting the other's position. But we have to realize that there are consequences either way. There are serious consequences. We have to try to figure out what those are and, you know, how to make sure that they do not contradict the faith and reconcile them with the faith. Um, but at the same time, I think each one of us has to recognize that regardless of who is or is not the Pope, that we individually personally are not the Pope, and we can't start laying down dogmas for each other. And so what we have amounts to theological conclusions, uh, more or less reasonably argued, Logical conclusions? Logical, theological, logical conclusions. And the result of human reason based upon the principles of the faith that we have mm -hmm. and the facts as we know them, right? And we have to judge according to those things. We have to. We're required by God to make these judgments um, um, based upon the principles of the faith, okay? But uh, we can disagree about some things, and this is one thing that I think we can disagree upon. Uh, that we can disagree about without anathematizing each other. Sure. Father, this is all so very fascinating. It's very fascinating times that we live in. I know I've asked this before, but how does all of this get resolved? You know, because I, I think it's so important to reiterate this point where you say we know what we have to do in these times, which is what St. Paul said in his epistle is, is hold fast to the traditions that you have received. So that's what we do in order to eventually arrive at the solution. But what does the solution look like? What will be the result of our holding fast to the traditions that we have received? I, I don't have it in front of me, but we actually just, just today received an email from a viewer who said he was very, very confused about everything that's going on. And he asked, Father, why doesn't Our Lady just appear to a holy soul now, like she has done so many times in the past, and explain clearly that Vatican II was a bad council, um, this modernism, infiltration of the church, and everything that has happened, all of that was anti-Catholic, anti-Catholicism, why doesn't Our Lady just appear and set matters straight for us? Why not? Well, because I, 
time. Clearly, if Our Lady were to appear to someone and tell them that, someone would have to judge whether this was authoritative and, and, and true or not, right? And ultimately, it would be the authority of the church that had to judge whether this was a real, bona fide, uh, private revelation that is true and worthy of belief. And who's going to do that? Tom? <laughs> Am I going to do that? And who would do that in such a way that everyone would, would say, okay, well, yeah. this is this is right. something we can accept right. and uh, authoritative. I mean, it, so that doesn't solve anything, okay. you know? And uh, that's why Our Lady wouldn't do that because she knows it, it wouldn't really solve the, the problem. The, the problem is the problem of authority within the church. Mm -hmm. um, and who is the voice? The voice of the shepherd. What we're hearing is not the voice of the shepherd. What we're hearing is the voice not of the mercenary. What we're hearing is the voice of the wolf, the enemies of the faith, okay? Those who would tear and snatch the flock and scatter the sheep and devour the sheep. That's what we're hearing coming from the Vatican right now. So... Um, this is the crisis that we are in right now. And, and it, let's face it, we brought it upon ourselves by our infidelity uh, because we failed to listen to the voice of Our Lady when she did appear right. at Fatima. Right. You know, the, the hierarchy and the, the, uh, the clergy did not insist that the Catholic people hearken to the voice of Our Lady at Fatima, La Salette, at Lourdes. And so um, we, you know, the, the, what Our Lady predicted at Fatima is coming true now. Precisely because her words were not heeded as they had to, as they, as they should have been. Um, and so that's really not, not the solution. What's going to be the ultimate outcome of it? There are those who say we're in the end times now. Okay. And uh, people are scattering, trying to figure out, okay, where can we find an oracle to speak to tell us what to expect? Some, some turn to the prophecies of St. Malachi, saying, okay, this has got to be our guidestone here as to what's coming. Others say, well, you know, uh, read this from this seer who says they're receiving messages from, from heaven, you know, but uh, some want to go to Medjugorje, you know, and say, okay, that has the ultimate answer to it all, but it's not true. People are grasping right now. Uh, but I, I still think Second Thessalonians chapter 2 contains a lot of the answers we need, and that's divine revelation in sacred scripture. Whereas St. Paul says, hold fast in the times of the Antichrist, he says, Hold fast to the traditions that you've received, whether in written form or by word of mouth. That's, that's, that's tradition, okay? He even talks about the scripture. Uh, that is what St. Paul wrote as a form of tradition. It's written tradition, sacred scripture, really. So he says, hold fast to that. Love the truth. He says there that the love of the truth will immunize soul against the deceits of the Antichrist. And um, so, you know, the fact that he says in the times of the Antichrist, we have to hold fast to the traditions is a clear indication not to accept the falsifications of the faith and the religion that are going to come in by changes, but hold fast to what you've received down through the ages as the faith and the religion that will save you. And um, so... Those who believe we're in those times right now understand that that's what we need to do. Uh, there are others who you know, think, well, if you, if you question whether Francis is the Pope, then you say the papacy is over, and we're then out to sea, and we are out adrift without a paddle. 
Others would say, if you say Francis is the Pope, you're saying the papacy is over, and we're adrift without a paddle. Oddly enough, they're, they're coming to the same conclusion in opposite, you know, the opposite way. If Francis is the Pope, we've destroyed the papacy. If he's the Pope, the papacy is meaningless now. If he's not the Pope, we've destroyed the papacy because there can be no more Popes. And they're, they're both uh, frightened by the same conclusion. They really need to talk this over seriously, you know, instead of yelling and shouting and shaking their fists at each other. They need to have some serious discussions. I think both, both groups are really motivated by a love for the faith. As far as the ultimate outcome, only God can provide that. And we are in such a deep, deep pickle right now. We are in such a deep pit, I would even call it a, an abyss right now, that only God can rescue this situation. But Tom, we can look back to history, times in the church's history, when we saw exactly that during the Arian heresy. Right. I mean, only God could solve that problem. You look back, I mean, uh, in, into time, like the, the Council of Constantine and the Great Western Schism. Only God could solve that problem. And I think it's a very serious mistake we make when we think, okay, we're going, to, we're going to have to solve this problem. We're going to sit down and figure out how we're going to solve this problem. You can't. I can't. We can't. Okay, it's not our church in the sense that it is, it is our Lord Jesus Christ's church. It is the, the third church of Christ, our Lord himself. He is the founder. He is the, he is the guide. He is the one who sent the Holy Ghost to guide the church, the spirit of truth. He is the one who has to solve this problem. It's his church. It doesn't belong to me. I'm not its founder, and I'm not going to be its savior. Okay. And so we all have to accept that limitation in all of our parts. So we have to look to, to our Lord to send that, send that solution. Who would have guessed that the solution to the great Western schism turned out to be Council of Constance? Who would have, who would have thought that? And yet, God solved that problem in a way that was not expected. And it uh, just goes to show that he can and will do it. I'm not talking about Francis's spirit of surprises here. I'm just talking about the divine power uh, at work uh, here in the life of the church to, to rescue the church from what in the eyes of the world is, is, is certain death, okay? Mm -hmm. In the eyes of our enemies, certain death. Right now, the enemies of the church believe that the church is marked for death and is on her last gasp, okay? I don't believe that. I believe that God, well, I know that's not true. I believe that God and God alone can rescue this, but he will. I have an absolute confidence that he will do so. Sure. Exactly how that's going to be, that's not my department. Okay? <laughs> right. But my department is to have faith and hope and charity, and I pray I do. And Father, you, you mentioned looking back into history, and I think that it's it can be beneficial to look all the way back to the beginning of history when after Adam and Eve committed the, the first sin, uh, if you think about the consequences of that, here we have this infinite sin, essentially, offending our infinitely good God. So we have this infinite sin, which requires an infinite reparation. But how could we have an infinite reparation? Right. How could, it how, seemed hopeless. It seemed point. hopeless. How could mankind have an infinite uh, reparation for his infinite sin because mankind is not infinite. So it seemed an absolute impasse, an incomprehensible situation 
but there was the incarnation. The incarnation. And so we had a solution that was totally beyond any human thought whatsoever, any human power of, of, of being able to conceive that idea. So I think if you even go all the way back to the very beginning of history, we have an example of that. So. And that is why the faithful of the Old Testament, looking forward to the coming of a Redeemer, whom God promised to send, had faith. And they had faith in the same Redeemer you and I have. From this point in history, looking back, we, we recognize him, whom they, whom they anticipated in faith. And that was attributed to them as justice. They were justified by right. that. But we know now that not only believing in that Redeemer is necessary, but obeying him is necessary to be faithful to him sure. as well. And that's true. You're absolutely right, Tom. And um, when our Lord died on the cross and his body was laid in the tomb, I mean, how long did it take our Lord to convince his apostles that he'd really <laughs> risen from the dead? Because it, it just seems so inconceivable this could be. So, I mean, we have to have... the. We have to have true faith and, and the uh, supernatural faith in, in our Lord, in the church that he established, uh, in, his, in his power and his continued love for souls, that, that he certainly has the power to remedy this situation, and he will. But he'll do it in his way, not your way and not my way. Okay? <laughs> uh, and neither the Vicantists or the, neither the Saint of Vicantists or the Antisaint of Vicantists are going to dictate to our Lord what he can and cannot do, okay? But they should not allow Francis to dictate what a pope can do and what he can't do. Because that would be, that would be very bad. That would be letting the modernists call, dictate to us what the papacy is or, or isn't. And that's one thing I would like to think we have to all agree on. Sure. So, in any case, I, I'm sure this is not what you had in mind to talk about. <laughs> it's, not, it's not, Father, but I think it worked out. Um, but, you know, that's what happens, right? Sure. No, I think that's very... We, we do want to get to the questions of those who have written in, and we will certainly next time. We will, yeah. Well, yeah, I think that was a good discussion to have on. I think it's it's topical. It's pertinent. I think it... it well, in light of what Francis said here, I mean... You have to have to comment upon that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But, well, Father, thanks for being here tonight. I appreciate your time. Oh, well, thank you, Tom. Yeah, no Appreciate yours, too. Yeah. Take care. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.